Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. Today in the studio, we have the artist Daniel Brush, who has a cult following. Um, He's from New York. He makes some of the most immaculate pieces on earth. Fascinating guy. What did you guys talk about? Yeah, so uh, it's really exciting to have Daniel in the studio. He's someone I've known for a few years, uh, have followed his work for even longer since he had an exhibition at the Museum of Arts and Design. He's one of the most special minds I've ever come across. Uh, People tend to call him reclusive. I don't really see him that way. Uh, He just lives a very ritualistic, monkish kind of lifestyle. There's a great level also of storytelling and theater and what he does. So as you'll hear on the episode, he's someone who tends to talk in chapters. He'll have these long answers and you might wonder, where's he going with this? And then all of a sudden he wraps it around and you say, ah, it's yeah. pretty amazing. Uh, I love speaking with him. It was a joy to have him in the studio. Uh, really excited about this. I'm really looking forward to listening. This is Daniel and Spencer. Today in the studio, we have Daniel Brush. He's, I think, first and foremost, a poet. We could also, if we're going to do labels, label him a goldsmith, a jeweler, a metal worker, an artist, a sculptor, a philosopher, a scholar, an engineer. One thing we would not call him is a jewelry designer. Nicola Bos, the CEO and president of Van Cleef and Arpels, has referred to you, uh, Daniel, as a magician. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh-huh. You're known for your special work of craftsmanship, which really goes beyond categorization. And I think one of the things that's so special about what you do and where I wanted to start this interview is the subject of language. I think a lot of what you're doing, and you've described this before, is sort of finding some way of speaking, finding the language of, of, of something. And you're, you're doing it through the medium of gold, of steel, of these different materials that you work with. And we'll, of course, talk about those. I found a very interesting connection in researching this. And uh, this is uh, maybe unexpected one, but uh, 10 years ago, in 2009, I took a writing class at the Center for Fiction here in New York with with a a man named Gordon Lish. I don't know if you've heard of Gordon, Mm -hmm. but he's a famed fiction editor who worked with Raymond Carver, Don DeLillo, Cynthia Ozick, Barry Mm -hmm. Hanna. The class was about how language can be manipulated to produce maximum effects. That was sort of, in essence, what it was about. He sought to show students the way toward being in charge of language rather than the other way around. So during the workshop, if he didn't like a sentence, he'd say, he'd kind of interrupt and say something like, it doesn't tell me anything about the human truth. Hmm. So it could often feel like torture to sit through these classes, which could run five hours or more starting at around 5 p.m. and sometimes going until midnight. 
And what he was doing, I think, was really instructive. It was, it was about the value of time, of sitting with your thoughts, pushing them this way and that, thinking things through. He wanted us, his students, basically to get clarity, even if it was a painful, grueling process. And I bring all this up because I'm thinking about having done, you know, spent about eight hours, 10 hours researching you and realizing here's a man, you, who speaks sort of in these really powerful ways through the, through your media. How do you, I guess, think about language? How do you find clarity? How do you search for these things that I just talked about? It, it came to a, you know, it kind of boiled over for me when I was like eight or 10 years old because I was obsessed with being the fastest typist in the world. I was really good at it. You know, what was the, the sentence, bring all good men to the aid of your country? I was, like, I was up to like 125, 130 words a minute. Impeccable snap to the key and mm. the impression on the paper. And what it dawned on me was I had absolutely nothing to say, but I was very good at typing. And from that minute till now, I type and write with one hand behind my back uh, because I want to make sure that I at least try to say something or not saying anything but just displaying virtuosity and mm. craft and from that time forward, I struggled less so when I was a teenager because like everybody else, I got wrapped up in high school and sports and all these kinds of things. But when I was in school and college and the university, I didn't want to be good at anything. I wanted to hopefully have a little bit to say. Mm. And I tried to avoid all those things that were on the surface of things learning how to paint with oil paint and making sure my knives were sharp for the woodcuts. I, I wanted to somehow have the brutality of struggle. Mm. And maybe that was fashionable then. I don't really, I didn't see anybody around me doing that. I, I was kind of lonely until I met Olivia. Your wife. Yeah. We've been married. We've been together. We've been thinking about all of this for 52 years, mm. sharing a studio. I've seen her described uh, as your one-woman support system. All the work I've done in all the years is her work. That's what it is. Every breath is with her breath, too. Mm. As time went on, you know, like what you're describing in your writing class, the words and the breathing, it was very important to me the more I kind of deleted everything in front of me and only found those things that were comforting. If I could stand in front of a Barnett Newman painting and be captured, if I could stand in front of just the simplest, most beautiful mark in a Japanese garden, mm. I was aware of the presence of the maker. Mm. And I was thinking about, on the way over here, in 1972, I read about, I saw clips from Beckett's play, ultimately for Billy Whitelaw, that she never performed it. 
but it was, you know, the plate, not I, generally called play for the mouth, darkened theater. And I, I dreamed about it for years, thinking that, that he was up in the audience or alone in the theater, way up someplace, listening to this extraordinary pouring out of words. And she missed one word. She missed a word, and he went, ah! Mm. And then he went, oh. And when I was young, you know, that that was like, you know, 40-some years ago, 45 years ago. It just hit me so hard that those words, you know, how could I find the intensity that he was feeling? I felt, gee, being an artist, God, you know, dream about being a writer and a poet, move to New York, find a voice, you know, delete eccentricity, delete egocentrism. Just how do you find that truth, that purity? You know, it really hit me hard. And for all these years, I keep, I, I kind of like keep hearing it, you know, and it, it, it gives me companionship. My mother gave me for a present, you know, when I was still in the university, David Smith by David Smith, this just like wonderful book, and he was writing in it, and he could see his pictures. I could see his eyes in one of those photographs. And I thought, how did, how did it get like that? Did he eat the right broccoli? You know, like, <laughs> like what is that? I mean, was it like he liked driving his big flatbed truck with the steel? He liked being a tough guy? There's something deeper than that. He wanted to say, here I am. And I look for that. Maybe that's what mm-hmm. your, your professor was trying to get yeah. at in the class. How do you get the, the words so clear that the reader's holding your hand when reading it, knows that you're there, wasn't in any way decorated with adjectives and punctuation. It was just that one breath. I've had the great fortune to know this woman for, it seems like now, it must be over 60 years, from Holland. She introduced us, embraced us into her family. Her father was the chief justice of the Court of Human Rights in The Hague. Mm. And I remember when I was really young, I enrolled some drawings to show him. And he made this kind of, you know, I joke about it, it's this kind of Dutch noise. It's like, (gasps) you know, like that noise. I love that noise. It's like, you know, this kind of breathless, full emotional noise. You know, in, in Yiddish, there's some word called verklempt. It sort of translates into there's so much emotion, you're choking because you can't speak. Mm. You know, I felt that when I look at certain things, I felt it when I was growing up. You know, it's like all these things that kind of like hit me. And I think about it a lot now, you know, as I'm older, I keep thinking about all these things that were so important. You know, every once in a while, people would come to my parents' house for dinner. It wasn't these lavish dinner parties. It was like, you know, it was like dinner. And this one woman, I never knew her name. Her name was Rabbi Seligman's wife, but I didn't know what her name was. I never thought about it till recently. You know, and I was must have been like, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old. You know, modest, beautiful, fair complexion, didn't speak much, really. 
And I'll never forget that on her left arm, there were these blue numbers. And my parents were gone. I didn't have relatives to ask. She was gone. But of course, you know, as you get older and you read and you study and you think, you find out what this is all about. And I kept, even to this day, think that she had this ferocious intensity because of what she saw. Mm. She was ethereal and translucent. You know, I long for that purity. You know, I really long for that. I must sound like I'm rambling on. (laughs) Well, I think what's beautiful about the way you, you speak is it's not just in sentences. You're sort of telling stories that amount to chapters and kind of olivia and i we live very remotely you know it's like we're working all the time Mm -hmm. you know we're in the studio it's olivia's more of nanak of the north than me it's like get up (laughs) look for food build an igloo go to sleep and i'm sort of sweeping the floor and wondering and worrying and wandering around what I what I find is time's very strange. I was very preoccupied for, with a why hole, and then I got rid of it. Now I'm more preoccupied with it. But, you know, you look down, and it's like you're 20 years old, and there's a couple piles on the floor, and then it's like 30 years old and a few rolls of canvas on the floor. And I never showed them to anybody. And then it was like 45 years old, and it's like, oh, my God, you know, you got to, like, move the bed over there because there's more stuff. <laughs> and then at, like, 50 years old, it's like, gee, I'm going to, like, take over our son's room because I don't have enough places to put some of this stuff. And it was kind of a record of all the time, all the work, all the thinking about it for no purpose. So, you know, somebody came into the studio not long ago, you know, businessman. He wasn't really invited for any purpose. He kind of like showed up with his, you know, wife. And he, he looked around. He says, what is all this? What is this stuff? I said, what are you talking about? He says, is this your inventory? And I didn't really know what he was talking about. That <laughs> yeah, was just so funny. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, well, you know, you got rolls of canvases and paintings and metal and this and that. I said, no, 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 no. This is, a, it's a diary. It's a journal. It's just, it's a record of time. It's a way I think. Mm. And he said, we have to monetize this. I said, what are you talking about? I mean, <laughs> it has nothing to do with anything. It has yeah. to do with confusion and spirals of confusion and, and trying to, it's trying to get a grip so that I can maybe one day say, here I am. That would be an ultimate statement. Here I am on a sculpture or on a drawing. I think it's interesting, you know, in, in 1997, um, which was one of the first major pieces of press you got, it was a cover story that Departures magazine yeah, did. Yeah. You, you said, I'm not concerned with money. I'm concerned with clarity. Yes. And I think the same is very true still today. Well, you know, it's, I just can't worry about it. I entertain young artists and, you know, in every discipline to the studio if, you, if their eyes say they need to come. And, and invariably, people say, you know, I could see it in their eyes, like, how'd you do this? You know, how'd you get to this place? Like, what'd you have to do? The story's a really maybe simple one or an odd one. When I graduated and had my master's from university, I, you know, like everybody else... 
I could work at Cart and Crate in Los Angeles or drive a taxi. And I thought, well, so I wrote to 120-some schools for a job, and I actually got one. I couldn't get over it. <laughs> and, uh, you know. What was the job? I was hired as a lecturer in the Department of Fine Arts at Georgetown University. Mm -hmm. So we moved across the country in our red VW van with the purple curtains. <laughs> that was the time. It was just really great. I missed that, that the Volkswagen. <laughs> and I, I enjoyed it immensely because, you know, I was given the old library at Georgetown University, three floors, the old building, you know, spiral staircases. And I, from the start, you know, teaching drawing and painting and all that, I, f I finally you know, went to the academic dean and I said, you think I could maybe do what I really wanted to do? And I wanted to teach a class of confusion. You know, I wanted to teach uh, a class of my own construct. And it was entitled uh, The Relationship of Structure to Meaning. And he said, sure. I loved it. I absolutely mm. loved it. And my students we're so hungry. I'll give you an example of a couple of things. We all were, you know, like I never gave tests. It was more of ask questions. I remember one of the first problems to think about, and I was thinking about it. I, I still think about it even now, mm. was I wanted them to think about a two-dimensional shape that they could stand on for the rest of their lifetime and never leave you know, I gave him about a month to kind of grapple with this. It was really extraordinary to watch 17, 18-year-old people. And at the time, I was like, I can't remember, like 25 years old teaching, to argue about it, wonder about place it in relationship to other ones for companionship and boundary. It was really an incredible sociological exercise mm. that was never, of course, complete. There was another class, because I remember I was very fortunate when I was in university at Carnegie Institute of Technology, which became Carnegie Mellon University. I had a wonderful teacher. He was one of the great thinkers. Arnold Bank? Oh, I had Arnold Bank, actually. Mm. He was this wild man a font designer and great calligrapher. <laughs> and if you were in his favor, Arnold and his wife would invite you to their, on Friday evening soiree, to talk about everything. He was wonderful. I really loved Arnold. I was thinking about Robert Lepper. Robert mm. Lepper was, you know, the person that ultimately came up with, well, you know, you've got this frozen food, and how do you get it from the freezer to the oven? And you got to wait, and you got to defrost. And he came up with Pyrex Corningware. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that was so cool. <laughs> Somehow morphing from all his thinking, and I gave my students a class, like, why can't you drink blue for breakfast? Everybody really couldn't grapple with it. You know, it wasn't so basis, like, well, you know, eat blueberries and all this. I'm thinking more in terms of, you know, ingesting blue and all that reference for blue around you and, and pigment and color and refracted light and all this kind of stuff. You rarely see blue food. So, you know, the class was really quite great. The final 
final before I retired. I was a tenured teacher in the university. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know what the proper word is. I gave back tenure and left. With that a, was in 1978. Yeah. Yeah. Olivia and I went to this modern dance performance, and there was this extraordinary dancer, and I asked her if she would perhaps mind if I constructed a piece for her to do. I, I did this all over the phone. I never actually saw her so that she could actually see me. I did it all over the phone. And I said I would like her to come to my class. And I had it all laid out. I would like her to walk a hundred feet in a straight line hmm. in my classroom, but take three hours to do the hundred feet. And at the end of the hundred feet, I'd like her to turn very slowly, almost in an attenuated way. And the turn would take an hour. <laughs> and I would like her to walk back out the room the 100 feet for another three hours so it was like a seven hour performance sounds like uh marina abramovich yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it does and um it just took me out i couldn't breathe students <laughs> students drop like flies <laughs> the, the the dancer she was just life exhausted and what i was looking for was somehow if all of that could have could come together in just the moment or is it a folk tale that loses because of degeneration of retelling like that day that moment those people and that was it forever i like the idea of that i like it now mm. i like that someone sees something i've done and they try to retell it. They can't retell it. It's like a, in every way, of course, it's a performance. But, you know, visual work, I don't even want to separate it all. You know, like I was in Bangkok and I remember seeing a group of young girls, they were school girls, and they were, they almost floated above the sidewalk. I've never seen it again the rest of my life. They were fun, giggling, but they weren't grounded onto the problems of every day. They just floated. God, I loved it. And, and of course, you know, I could analyze it and say, well, maybe it's my projection to this. But I'm convinced I saw them floating. Totally. It's odd, right? Yeah. It was something like that memory does, right? Memory. Yeah. Our interpretations of memory, how we remember. That's That's right. And, you know, rounds back to, like, what you were talking about, you know, like the clarity of language. Mm. I'm interested in, in having the language disappear. So you don't see it. Yes. It's so rot that it should just be there. You know, there, there are many levels of understanding. You come upon something... And you see it in front of you and you try to digest it. Well, it's hard and it's, it's white and it's black. And, it's, and then after a while, you get to something a little below that. And it's like, wow, my God, you know, like, was that really the guitar that Hendrix played? 
And then you go a little farther below that and you start dreaming about those years in the late 60s. And you forgot the surface that you looked at to begin with. Mm. I love that. I've done this work, you know, it's hard to describe it, but, you know, I, hopefully I get to have some people, you know, interact with it. For years, I would see, I was privileged to have in my hand, or I would see in these, you know, exhibitions or auction companies, you know, a piece of jewelry, you know, and it would say something like, ruby and emerald and diamond bracelet worn by Marlena Dietrich. <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't get really what that was about. You know, it was, it was irritating to me to no end. I couldn't, I really didn't care about the bracelet. It's like meant, meant nothing to me. And why wasn't the focus shifted around? So I, you know, I spent all years thinking about the actresses in the 30s and 40s. Right. And I've done this piece now. The kind of momentum stopped. I don't know why it stopped at 69. It could have maybe gone to hundreds. It just stopped. I was probably got sidetracked into thinking about something else. But These steel cuff bangles. Yeah. So what it is is there is 69 steel and diamond cuffs. They're all hand-engraved, inlaid, and all that kind of stuff. And each one is engraved and chiseled with a different actress's name. They all look virtually the same. If you're across the room, they all look exactly the same. You call them ID bracelets or whatever with, you know, Lucille Ball and Hedy Lamar and all of that. And I wanted them to all look alike so that if you were in the position to put one on and you would say, yeah, Myrna Loy. And you would start thinking about Myrna Loy. And you'd start thinking about the movies she was in. You'd become Myrna Loy for all that period that you had it on. Or you would inform your friends and your children who this person was. You'd investigate Hedy Lamar's genius in, you know, electronic radio waves and realize that she was key to guidance missile systems and even now Bluetooth technology. Mm. And it wasn't, you know, the bracelet and the jewelry and the fashion accessory was just your way into the extraordinary lives of these women. It was interesting for me. And, and I keep thinking about, can I shift the balance a little bit so it was a history of those people, not whether I can engrave a bracelet well or set a diamond <laughs> well or whether you're going to look good at another court dinner party. It was really my wandering around, never having paid enough attention to the people that were in those movies. Well, it seems to me, you know, one thing that's that's pretty consistent throughout your work and also just your, your approach, not just to craft, but how you interact with the world um, is dialogue. Yeah. This, this notion of, building trust and intimacy, um, you true. know, encouraging people to, it's a, it's almost like a romantic approach. It is. Um, and I like this idea um, that you produce fewer, better things. You make very little, <laughs> uh, that you've, you, you don't accept commissions. You've never had a dealer. You're, you're fiercely protective uh, about who purchases your work, how your work is presented it's not really about collectors or clients or buyers. It's it's about having people who 
or like shepherds or caretakers or, you know, protectors even. I guess what I'm trying to get to or, or the point I'm trying to, to uh, have come across is this idea that you've described as compassionate awareness. Yeah. And I really like this idea because it is this notion of like, say only what needs to be said, listen, pay attention, slow down, <laughs> be present. So I guess, how do you think about this notion of, of engagement? Is that the value um, you see, like that you're just talking about these particular pieces? Is it really its engagement you seek? Uh, Olivia and me, our son has an incredible academic education and he spent time with me trying to explain Keynesian leakage to society and <laughs> economics. And um, he, of course, covers financial instruments and things like that. I worried about being a leakage to society. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't find a utilitarian purpose for what I did. So, you know, I think what you're talking about is right. If someone can share the space with me and the time with me by looking. You know, it's warm hand to warm hand. We're occupying the same time and space. When I had ex an exhibit a few years ago at, at uh, in the museum in New York, Olivia, she saw people breathing in a way that was almost breathing in the way I do the drawings. And I said, really? Hmm. I just thought that was an extraordinary relationship that if this abstract recording on paper could let somebody else experience it the way I made it, that was an extraordinary um, thing. You know, it had nothing to do with, you know, what's your value in it's like people, you know, have asked me, what's your value? I have absolutely no value. I mean, my value is a determination of market. My <laughs> pieces are not traded in the marketplace. Therefore, I have no value. So, you know, I sort of got beyond that. But in the drawings, you know, I've been doing the same drawing for over 50 years. They just look different, maybe because I've gotten older, you know. So the breathing is different or the touch is different. And short of even calling it a drawing, it it's a recording of a recording of myself thinking. Mm. So if you see in front of you on the you know vertical sixty inch piece of arch paper, top to bottom, left to right, line by line, you're looking at me committing, breathing standing on the paper, mm. extending my thinking and extending my reach, exhaling, and hopefully the thought passes through me. And when I was seeing that one day, you know, in the exhibit, people were trying to breathe. I like to engage with people, you know, it's like, you know, I go up to people instead of these formal lectures and I would say, so what do you think of the drawing? They say, well, you know, I don't really like it. Really? Why don't you like the drawing? Well, this, that, this, that. And I said, well, you know, I made it. No, you didn't. Really? You made the drawing? So you know, <laughs> it would come to, you know, a couple of times I would talk to people about the Hamsa breath. 
The Hamsa breath is not a Buddhist mantra, but it was something Buddha practiced for six years in his in exile. And, you know, I'm a product of Western education. Somehow I keep reading, thinking, doing, wondering about Asian thinking. I've never been to Japan. It, it's my romance and dream of it all. But, you know, the Hamsa breath is lightly and generally described as the inhalation and that moment and then the exhalation. And at times it was described as the left wing of the swan and the right wing of the swan. And if one can, you know, close their eyes and breathe in fully and breathe in all of life and everyone's life, there's that moment in the interstices that it swirls around. And you want it to leave. You want to be clear and clean. And the exhalation happens. And when the left wing and the right wing come together, you have the divine swan. I find that so beautiful and such a... I can't get a grip on it. And somewhere in all of that, I tuck it down deep inside. And yet, as I get older, it comes up, you know, to the top again. So all my studies, all my thinking, whether it be from the Society of Manufacturing Engineers or worrying about whether... Whitworth, Evans, and Holtzapfel really figured out the right screw thread generation in 1836? Or really, does it matter whether I use, you know, this kind of aluminum or that kind of steel? What kind of creeps up in me all the time is the perfection and the essence of this kind of ethereal delicacy. You know, like, Olivia and I were invited you know, I've never been to Japan. Much of my study has to do with the no theater. Only the women plays at the no theater. So I don't remember, two or three years ago, we read that, you know, there's going to be a no theater performance at Lincoln Center, I think it was. And mm-hmm. one of the people we know was a sponsor of it. And he said, oh, no, this is going to be great. You know, you'll be our guest. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. You know, it was like, th- it was very traumatic because I didn't want to see a no theater performance be outside of the 14th century. And that was a, an issue. So here it was. It was no longer the 14th century. So, okay, fine. So, you know, we got dressed. We went there. And... You know, I was so keen on it. You know, I was ready. I was so ready. It was like 35 years of reading transliterations of the No Theater. I I was prepared for the musicians to walk from left to right down the long, if you will, entranceway to the stage. And after about 15 seconds... I couldn't bear it because the five musicians' feet were not elevating at the exact moment 
they were out of sequence. I couldn't bear it. I couldn't mm. bear, you know, it, it wasn't the perfection of the dream I've had for, oh, so Olivia and I just, no, nah, we're leaving, went home, had pea soup. That was it, done. <laughs> You'd rather have the I, uh, imagination. I needed the, I needed the dream to, to stay. I needed it to be when I needed it to be. You know, I needed it to be able to, you know, here, I'll tell you this one recently. So even this morning I was thinking about it, maybe, you know, my age or whatever. But, you know, the no theater is, as I understand it, passed down father to son, father to son, even though now in contemporary times there are women performers. But, you know, in the more traditional sense, in the five schools, it was father to son, father to son. And there are levels of understanding, nine levels of understanding. If you started out on level three, you'd never live long enough to make it to level nine. Mm. So, you know, the family and the f elders would say, okay, fine, you, you can begin this course. And of course, when you start, the nine levels were grouped together in the 14th century by Ziami, and he collected folk tales and, you know, songs and music and costumes and it pulled together into this counterpoint to kabuki which is more flamboyant and colorful and beautiful the no theater for the most part as i understand it was tragic and difficult and subtle and, and in the in the domain of you know for the shogunate uh if you started out on level three you were basically as they say a, a flying squirrel that had no talent so you had to progress in your studies level seven you know maybe you were hopefully 35 40 years old it was described as uh, the art of the flower of stillness uh, snow piled high in a silver bowl you know when you were you know maybe 50 years old one of the characters was zoe uh, female character. She was so troubled at the loss of her feathered robe that she didn't realize that her child went missing. At that point, you might be able to play the role of an accompanying actor. At Sure, you'd come out, stand next to the one column of the six on the stage and say nothing. But the the audience, skilled, studied audience, would know that you were beginning to show signs of yukon, supreme elegance. It's really so beautiful. I can hardly breathe when I think about this <laughs> stuff. What I've been thinking about recently is, you know, level nine, you know, scares me to think about it. They kind of generally describe it as the older woman character in an old mask sits motionless on the stage next to a banyan tree so it's you know an older actor wearing female robes and mask and for the first hour and a half there is no motion no sound nothing and you are supposed to feel without question, that the actor and the character he was playing would 
both grow into being full-blown peonies. And that you could play it one time in your life because it takes 15 years off your life. You know, so I keep thinking, like, you know, it's all the work I've done, all the, you know, all the things and all the areas and all the stuff. You know, it leads up to not one performance, just leads to more stuff. You know, it's a collection. It's a collection. You know, I kind of determined, you know, you're not going to go out there to to make sure you you breathe the one perfect breath. You kind of, you know, I keep thinking, you know, it's just this ongoing cleanliness and clarity. The same as what your teacher said. Yeah. You know, get rid of all that extraneous stuff. Make sure that I know that what you say is what you mean. Yeah. You know, you can go bonkers in your studio sometimes. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, think about well, it. Yeah, and, and, and you famously um, work alone. You don't have... Olivia and me in the studio. That's yeah. it. Yeah. No assistance. Nobody, like, it would take all the struggle away. It's like, you know, it's like, I don't... I'm not trying to make a line of anything or a mm-hmm. group of anything or trying to get ready for an exhibit of anything. I'm yeah. just trying to get up make it through the day and go to sleep (laughs) and try to find something, you know, and it's like, there's not enough time. I'm working all the time. You know, I get up earlier now and stay up later, you know, 14, 15 hours a day. And, and, you know, there are all these things when I, when you're school, you, you know, I keep these things in my mind, you know, one piece breeds 10 pieces or a hundred pieces. And, and like, I'm only beginning, Hocus, I said, I'm only beginning to see the figure, you know, on his last breath. I mean, all these things, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, and again, you look at David Smith's eyes and you wonder about those tough guys at the Cedar Bar. I wasn't old enough to know them, yeah. these tough guys. I love the idea of it that, they were in New York, and they could battle through it. And alone in the studio, you know, grapple with it. And some people couldn't grapple well enough, and they didn't survive. And of course I think about it all the time. I wanted to uh, bring up one of your most prized possessions, which okay. is this no theater mask, yeah. uh, Yamabushi mask, yeah. that was given to you by your mother at age 13. What impact do you oh think that God. had? She on... was unbelievable. My mother was, you know, she was probably the toughest person I ever met in my life. Mm. She, um, she was a, a writer and a photographer. Well, I didn't really know who my mother was. Um, my mother, she didn't want me to know anything, and all she said was, "If if anything happens to me, go underneath the blotter on the desk." I thought, "Yeah, okay." I never did it. I was like a goody goody. I never <laughs> went under the blotter. And like the day came and like, oh God, I gotta go under the blotter. And I looked at it and it's like, call this guy, call that guy, call this, 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 this. And I thought, who are these people I never heard of? And then Olivia and I went, you know, in the attic and through the things, and it's like, who was this? And I'm seeing pictures of my mother and like, you know french clothing and standing in front of a packard and like in front of 
you know, I figured it out, like Copacabana in New York. And I thought, <laughs> God. And then pictures in Havana. And I thought, who was that? <laughs> I think it's worth noting you grew up in Cleveland, Yeah, Ohio. Cleveland. This is like, Mom, Mom, <laughs> who are you? You know, I knew you were tough, but gee. And and cultured. I mean, she took you to Europe on this trip. And she, she would take you to the Cleveland Museum of Art. She wanted me, she wanted me to learn and study and and maybe not have some of the toughness that she had growing up mm. you know i i realized that she was she was a really tough person from cleveland uh who carried a ladysmith pistol in her purse and uh was flamboyant mm. and at some point as the story goes, because we have the pictures, she was a photographer for the National Geographic. She had traveled all over the world. She wanted to be a service person, like a wave or a whack in World War II, but her mother wouldn't let her do it. My grandmother wouldn't let her do it. She had incredible courage. So, you know, she did everything she could to, you know, take me on trips. My father would stay home working in the bankrupt children's clothing business. And um, he ran a, a children's store. Yeah, a children's clothing store. And my mom and me and sometimes my grandmother joined. We went all over Europe and, you know, looked at the museums. And it was around the time that she gave you this no mask that you went to the uh, that's right the V&A museum and and saw this Etruscan gold bowl dating to 700 to 650 BC. Yeah, it was it was, you know, it was like, what do you want to do for your bar mitzvah? And it was like, okay, cool, we'll go to Europe. And <laughs> and it was like, it's like yeah, it was like one of those trips. It was like 13 countries in 11 days and four hours kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, she was just unbelievable. You know, we stood in the vault of the Victorian Albert Museum and saw this unbelievable this little gold bowl with a bazillion gold balls around it. It was a magical thing. And I I knew that I had to make something like that in my lifetime. Mm. And um, my mother gave me a Yamabushi mask that she on one of her trips had collected and I hadn't didn't know anything about it. Our house was filled with endless amounts of stuff, endless like National Geographics propping up the sofas, cabinets of curiosities from all over the world. Nothing that I would say would be a collector's fabulous thing. It was all this stuff from everywhere. And um, she gave me a Yamabushi, and um, I didn't think about it. You know, it was like, great, thank you. It was like this mask. She didn't talk to me too much about it, and it took, you know, until I was much older to think and finally get totally obsessed with and, and taken over by the No Theater. So it's a very early Yamabushi mask, mm. neither male nor female. And a Yamabushi would roam around the mountaintops, skin becoming red and ablaze, eyes glistening, because in their quest for enlightenment, they became 
mad. So this is what I got for 13 years old. <laughs> but uh, as, as you know, you've been in the studio. I mean, it, it's you're not supposed to hang up uh, no theater mask. You're supposed to use them in performances. And when they're not, they're in, you know, a box and wrapped in the appropriate wrappings. But I look at it. You know, I want to look at it. So it hangs in the studio. And I never dust it, ever, because the dust makes it look older. Mm-hmm. So we've been in the studio now for uh, close to 40-some years. You know, I walk by it every day. I try not to see it. I kind of avoid it, and then it looks at me. You know, but it, it keeps me balanced for sure. I think this um, connection to the East is so interesting, especially given the fact you've you've not traveled to Japan. I want to. It's just so scary. <laughs> you know, it's like I want to like make sure that it's you know, the 14th century. And, and every time I see pictures, it doesn't look like that. Yeah. There's, there's one in your imagination. Yeah. Um, I do think, uh, it's interesting to note too, that the Cleveland Museum of Art has these extraordinary collections of Indian. Sherman E. Lee was the great, great curator. I grew Mm up at one of the great collections. I would, spent you know after school saturdays sundays i would go and look you know dreaming about these things it's interesting that art could put you in that place you know the journey i had got i don't know very much infused with the way i grew up and the things i saw and the dreams i had um, I was playing concert piano when I was 13 and also painting, and I couldn't decide to devote one to the other, so I quit playing the piano overnight from one day to the next, and I've never touched the piano ever again in all the years. So, uh, you know, there were these very strong decisions or knee-jerk decisions yeah. that happened in my life. You know, Olivia and I got married instantaneously, yeah, the the day you met, right? Yes, you know, and we we've been together since the day we met and married three days later. That's the way it was. And <laughs> and, and you, I guess your your first sort of foray into making jewelry was her wedding ring. That's right. You know, I didn't think about any of that stuff, and I thought, okay, fine, I better. You know, I went out and bought an ounce of gold. I didn't know anything. <laughs> you were a painter. Yeah. I started hammering away at this, and I thought, cool. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you know, $35 an ounce. I didn't have to think about it that much. You know, I borrowed (laughs) the money from my father. (laughs) You know, know, I remember, you know, short of making the thing. This is 1967. Yeah. And, you know, it was like a piece of charcoal and cut a little groove for it and, you know, had little pellets of gold, and I melted it into this blob would be a wire then and and i remember when it was melting it gave off this just unbelievably incredibly gorgeous purple kind of Mm. glow it's so beautiful i still you know i don't work with gold in the last you know year but you know for all the years you know i i long to see that melting it alloying my own metal i was friends you know, I miss him. I was friends for a short period of time in terms of life. 
with Dr. Oliver Sacks. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I love Dr. Oliver would come over on Sunday morning. He would bring his Oliver biscuits, you know, because he didn't want to take food from our pantry. <laughs> and and we'd go in the back studio and we'd like, you know, I'd teach Oliver how to play with gold and make things in gold. He saw the purple light too. He thought it was super cool. And, you know, I was trying to teach him how to do granulation and all this kind of stuff. It was, he and I enjoyed it like little kids. Like when we, when we were both young, just kind of like, wow, look at that. You know, like that's like, what a glow, you know? And, um, yeah. you know, I missed that, those days when he would do that. As much as I knew about making things in gold i didn't know anything about it you know you can't know it it's it's just so strange you know when i was teaching you know i would go over to dumbarton oaks to look at the collection in the afternoon at lunch hour after school and um you know stand in front of those things and it finally dawned on me that i was i was pretty good at making this stuff and that's what got in my way. I didn't want to be good at it. Mm. And then finally dawned on me that I could never do granulation because I wasn't thinking like a little girl in Etruria in the 5th century BC. And it was hard for me, and I, I worked on it very conscientiously to delete everything I had ever learned about gold, anybody I'd ever you know, met doing gold work. I had been, Olivia and I had been all over the world. I'd seen people, you know, artisans, craftsmen, artists, everybody working in gold. I wanted to delete everything. It's like a vacuum. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to be a little girl, you know, playing with other little girls before lunch, laughing and joking and putting these little gold granules on something that the community might use. And it wasn't, it was way beyond insouciance. It was. They were little girls having fun, not thinking about being, you know, the the best granulator on gold stuff in the world. Mm. When that kind of epiphanic moment hit me, I finally realized that you know, I was going about all this the wrong way. You know, I was going about it not trying to get better and better and be a virtuoso. Just delete everything. Emptying your thoughts. Totally. It's really difficult mm. to remove everything it's funny i remember years ago i i did a interview with yoko ono yeah and it was about storytelling and mm -hmm. she was talking about how how she thinks about the sort of craft of storytelling and it's the same way it's it's take everything you've ever learned or know yes and try to eliminate it try to totally take it out of your mind it's breathing too it is it, it is. And, you know, you had mentioned, you know, compassionate awareness, being aware of, looking at, truly looking, being em embracing everything. I work on this. Mm. I was talking to an elevator mechanic in our building just the other day, and I just felt that he, you know, I was so aware of, you know, there he was standing there. He wasn't terribly conscious about his, you know, not healthy physique. His hands were blackened from the oil and the grease. You know, he hadn't in his hand a chicken, you know, one of these fast food chicken filet or, you know, kind of sandwiches. Didn't worry about washing his hands. And he really knew 
how to judge the tension in the cables that he was finalizing on the top of the elevator cab. I was impressed with his total confidence. I'd like to have that total confidence. You know, that that absolute, yes, mm. I understand the seventh level of the No Theater. Mm. I can't say it. You know, yes, I'm now totally captivated and I can see what Monet was talking about in Rouen. Mm. I'm, I'm closer. Not totally confident yet. I think that's interesting, um, thinking back to your early days as a painter, you were yeah. really fascinated with some of these post-war artists like Rothko, yeah, Clifford sure. Still, yeah. these artists who were known, you know, not just sort of for their their masculine strength, but but just the the willingness to make one stroke the strongest stroke. Or... That's right. That's right. I've only read about, you know, Rothko and Newman and John's I was able to meet and be in the studio of Kenneth Nolan. This must have been in 1970, 71. And I met Helen Frankenthaler in the, in the early 70s. I was young, though, and I was looking at, you know, I was trying to gauge what, what did they do? Who are these people? You know, how come they were celebrated? You know, was my, were, were the was a painting like Mountain and Sea really the one I should be thinking about? You know, I, I stayed away from the galleries then. I didn't go to the 57th Street galleries. I stopped going to, to all of them because I, 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 I wanted to make sure that I was seeing and understanding something the right way. Somewhere around, I can't remember now, somewhere around 1980-something, I mustered up the courage it was really hard for me. I mustered up the courage, and somehow he agreed. And Andre Emmer came down to the studio. Mm. And um, I unrolled the paintings on the floor like carpets. <laughs> These 12-foot by 7-foot paintings that generally looked like there were a bunch of lines on that piece of canvas. And it was a piece of canvas covered, looked like a rug with lines. And i never forget it. Andre Emmerich looked at it, and then he sat down, and he said, you know, something like uh, he had waited his lifetime to see those paintings. And I thought, Jesus, God, really? Or were you too old and you were gratuitous? I never really knew. I never saw him again after that. Hmm. It was fierce. And in fact, I kept those paintings rolled up for all the years, you know, for over 30 years, like carpets in the studio. It, it was the romance, you know, Hugo Mulis's book, The New York, The New Art Scene. I got it when I was, you know, very young. And I saw the pictures of these painters in their studios. And it was like, what did it take to be that, you know, what do you have to do to be strong enough to withstand it? And, you know, it, it, time passes very rapidly. You know, it's like 30 years later now, almost 40 years later. I still think about it. You know, it's like, 
you know, I look out of my studio and I see the 13 water tanks. I'm like, I'm in New York City and I am working. I'm working. They got up, I get up. I'm working. It means a lot to me. And and it means a lot to me that even, you know, anybody thinks about any of the time I've spent working. It's just, you know, it gives you companionship. And I think time is such a fascinating element of your work. You can spend, a, you know, a thousand hours working on one piece. You can leave a piece in your studio sitting there and return to it a year later. You know, I worked on this one piece, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's, you know, I don't know what the words are, series of, group of, whatever. It's 117 drawings. It took 13 years to make it. It's entitled Red Breathing Cantos for the Women Plays. I'd never shown it to anybody. I never looked at it. You know, Olivia kind of squirrels away my stuff. She hides it so I can't find it. She, <laughs> she puts it under other stuff. She wants to give it a little breathing room. In 2007 or eight, I kind of think that's when it was, I had the opportunity to meet Gerhard Steidel. You know, he's, he's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Gerhard's like this Willy Wonka yeah. of printing. Legend. Yeah. He was, he's just incredible. So, you know, I said, what are you working on? You know, I showed him the thing, you know, this 117 drawings. And he said, well, very hard to get a space to show all 117, but I'll print a book on that. (laughs) Really? So, so, you know, he flew Olivia and me over to Gotingen and, you know, He's such, he he's so bad with his own diet. He has his own chef, and he's like takes care of the photographers and the writers. And you're eating really well for a couple of weeks, you know. And he printed the book, you know, limited edition. He printed. He said at least it's documented. Unbelievable, really. Mm. Nobody's ever seen it other than the book. They've never seen the. It's sitting in a stack of drawing. You know, I need the space. You <laughs> yeah. know, I need. You know, it's like those great days of when Philippa de Manil was thinking all over the place with Heiner Friedrich about Dia. You know, I was too young. You know, I kind of long for that kind of thing now. You know, where like, gee, wow, that's kind of odd. Let's find a building in like southwestern Vermont and put it in there and we <laughs> won't say anything and people will come and they'll look and they'll leave that's just the coolest thing of all time. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, no explanation. Let people create the work in their own mind. Mm, respond to it. Yeah. And it's there, protected somehow mm. with the cold wind blowing. You know, I, I long for that kind of thing yeah. apart from value. Doesn't have any value. It's a bunch of drawings. <laughs> well, I think there's this notion of um, sort of talismanic power, uh, yeah. the, the idea of like a sacred object or some some way of like kind of reaching something that's that's divine. And in your case, mm-hmm. through a lot of your work, you've, of course, been doing this through the hours, but through the material, through how mm-hmm. you use the material. Um, I actually printed out a list of all the materials that you, you, oh, you have yeah. used and it's it uh it takes up an entire page here uh, <laughs> but i mean it's, it's well there's a lot of cool stuff out there yeah. <laughs> you know and it's like every day i can't wait you know I, I get olivia gets my son gets these like printouts these pamphlets from you know manufacturing companies and you know societies 
and it it rapidly changes you know mm-hmm. like you know i i find it terribly interesting to think about new technologies and yeah, you know yeah. i don't have the ability because i'm not a manufacturer i'm not a government contractor to be able to use some of these fabulous things i i somehow long and wish i could be a student at the mit you know experimental lab i just think that's the coolest place in the world where you can start using these odd and curious kinds of things you know i i'm still kind of begging and borrowing to get like you know one instance i had this friend he's gone now but he was you know he lived in california and i never met him but i had an ongoing 25-year phone conversation with him and he was an engineer for early on beginnings of nasa you know he knew i was making things he he couldn't understand what an artist was you know he said okay you know you're making things and what kind of lathe and what's the tolerance using laser sighting beams and all this kind of stuff so, but i had a good relationship with him because he knew everything i wanted to know in terms of what are go blocks what's a no go block how, you know how do you measure screw threads and all this kind of stuff so over the phone i would learn a great deal from roy and and roy sent me once in the mail, and I still have it, a a small piece of steel that he polished. It was breathtaking. It was just, Mm -hmm. you know, I looked with a microscope. There's no pores, you know, it's just absolutely, you know, this totally extraordinary surface flat. And, you know, on the phone, he joked, and he said, well, you know, you know, they, they left some of my polished pieces on the moon to reflect back early, you know, laser beams i said really you know it's like he he could take me out with his ability to do things and as time went on early on like maybe 25 30 years ago you know i was working on steel and in the mail without any warning he'd send me a little piece of steel you know meaning like maybe one inch diameter a foot long he sent me a piece of steel and he would say you know okay you know do something with this he said try this I was like, yeah, okay, Roy, I'll try that. You know, I go in the studio and, you know, I try to like hammer away at this kind of thing or machine it in some way. And it was so beautiful. Like, God, you know, like unbelievable stuff. And I call him up. I said, this is the greatest stuff I've ever seen. It's not like what I can get in the foundries and the mills. And he would joke. He had this kind of funny kind of like laugh about himself. And he said, well, of course you can't get it. It's government contract. You can't have this. This is like a cutoff. (laughs) I was like, what are you talking about, Roy? So, you know, I I learned, you know, I was fortunate to have met some of these people because however, you know, like I liked early machinery and I started collecting Mm -hmm. ornamental turning equipment. You know, it was the, you know. You have a large collection of lathes. Yeah. You know, it was the kind of thing, like if you're going to be the French king, you better be able to have one of these things. So, you know, I was fortunate to get guilloche machines and straight line engines because they're so beautiful. Mm -hmm. So every once in a while, the engineer types that had some of these things or loved it or whatever, I'd run across them. I wanted to sort of wrap up our conversation about the subject of light because light is something we haven't really touched on yet and is so central to your work. Uh, Obviously, it's sort of like a, let's call it energy or or life force. It allows sort of a vehicle for making the work you do even larger than it is uh, in some ways. You know, well, it's on my mind now because there's an upcoming exhibit, which I'll kind of roundabout talk to you about. But, you know, (laughs) Olivia and I were... You know, I was making a lot of gold work and granulated and all this kind of stuff. And, 
it looked pretty good. It could sort of hold its weight pretty well at, at the V&A, you know. <laughs> and Olivia and I were in Florence, and she said, my God, like the whole city is just glowing. And it was. It was about 5 o'clock, and it had this incredible kind of religious glow to it. And, you know, we kept looking, looking, where does it come from? You know, like, and of course the sun was setting and it was reflecting off the Duomo, you know, the gold dome. And it absolutely, that moment, I knew that everything I had done so far had, you know, it was just, it was good, you know, I was like, okay, fine. But I hadn't made anything yet. It, it, it was like, I had to somehow understand the light, you know, and how gold could be instrumental in that. Or just, could I paint with light? Could I embrace it? And from that day forward, you know, all the gold that I had used and all the steel and all the aluminum has to do with a very active participation of how light can change everything visually. What I've been working on and what an upcoming exhibit will be happened because years ago I joined a collector. He said, Look, you have to come with me. We're gonna, you know, go to this fancy gallery uptown, put on your fancy clothes. I'm gonna go try to buy a Monet painting. And I thought, Oh my God. <laughs> and I was like, again, the limousine. It's like, oh God. So I went up there and you know, there's the painting hanging on the wall. I really, I hated it. I, you know, I never really liked Monet paintings at all. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, great. So there's the Monet painting. And, you know, it just didn't do it for me. And the dealer showed the collector the same painting on a transparency, a big 8 by 10 transparency. Mm. And it was gorgeous. The light came through it. And after I saw it, you know, Olivia and I went to Giverny, we went to Rouen, we went to everywhere. We, like, lived Monet everywhere. <laughs> I wanted to see what the hell he was looking at. And it was the light, mm. you know, and how it transformed the, with these incredible colors. And up until, like, three years ago, I thought I was kind of seeing stuff. But, you know, an eye exam said that, no, no, you have cataracts. You don't see anything. It's, like, all clouded and brown. I said, Really? So within two weeks, I had both eyes done, you know, and it's like new lenses. And all of a sudden, it's like, my God, look at those colors. Look at those colors. And the upcoming exhibit, which I guess has been now thinking about it for and working on it for over 20 years, is thinking about Monet capturing the light. Mm. And, And it's about work I've been doing with aluminum and steel and gold where there is no applied color whatsoever. It is through the engraving and placement on the wall, they act almost as diffraction line gratings, giving back to the viewer purples and blues and colors that are not pigment colors. They're intense light colors. Mm. And I remember, you know, before he past you know i showed one to oliver and he said god i never seen a pink like that i said really i said like let's go get the science prism from you know physics class he said no no no, i never saw that pink before so that kind of creeped me out but i thought 
that was beautiful really what I, you know it's like what, what's going on here with the pink you know reflective pink or you know refracted pink mm. so you know that's what i've been working on mm. almost every day now it's so interesting you mentioned monet in relation to light because for me one of the most sort of let's call it religious or divine yeah. experiences i've ever had was in a museum in japan the Chi- the chichu art museum mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in naoshima and it's um they have a room there of Monet's water lily paintings, mm-hmm. and the way that the light sort of comes down onto them, the way that they're presented, it is, it's like a room to die in or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. It, it's like what you were saying, the sacred moment. You know, Olivia and I stood in the two artillery sheds in Marfa for Don Judd, you know, Donald Judd, of course, we've been in. I always get them confused. You know, Musée Jus de Pomme or where the lilies are, mm. and the Rothko Chapel. You know, I always wanted to see it when he had the studio up in the eighties, as opposed to there. But you know, the sacred moment where the light comes in and you see this abstraction that's so clear, you balance your life by it. You feel calmer. You do. You feel that it... You find equanimity of spirit. Mm. And you're sharing it not just with yourself. You're sharing it with a very long thread of humanity. That's important to me. I like that. I like the idea that someone can stand in front of artwork. They either pee in their pants or they smile from ear to ear or they shake uncontrollably. It's a big emotion. If it really transfers, I'd love that. You know, I have felt it myself. You know, standing in front of, you know, Newman paint, you know, Stations of the Cross. I have felt it. And I've stood next to people who don't feel it and wonder why. You know, do you have to have the right receptor? Do you have to be totally open and delete everything you learned in university? What do, what do you need to have? You know, I think I told you, I told somebody, you know, like, Mora Hiro Ogawa placed in my hands, you know, the most important Japanese sword in North America. And he said, could you see the clouds parting in the steel? I I was shaking. And it wasn't shaking because of the history of Masamuni, and it wasn't shaking because of the beauty of the steel. It was shaking because of the threat of humanity that passed through it. You know, or I was ready. I was ready with the play. I cherished that moment. It was a sacred moment to me. And I work every day to make sure I'm trying to find a voice. Like, that's all I have. So I, as my son says, I don't leak out to society. (laughs) (laughs) That's good, right? Yeah. So at the end of the day, I guess, is 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 that your hope with, with the work you do, that, that you transfer some of this kind of energy to people through? You know, all I can ever hope for is that somebody knows, would would recognize or feel that I am on that work with all my heart and nothing beyond it. That's all I hope for. If they walk away, fine. You know, I remember, I kind of think, I think it was my mother. I can't remember who told me this. I'm trying to, like, look through all my notes about it. 
But, you know, you could never tell as the story goes, the romance of it. The man walks through the village. Some people would throw stones at the man. Some people would just jump up and down wildly laughing at the man. And other people would change their life because of the man. I love the story. Mm. You know, any of those kinds of things are so powerful that, you know, if you say, like, my God, you're an artist, you know, so it's hard to say, you know, people say, what do you do? I don't, you know, it's like, I'm an artist. You know, it's like, you don't want to be totally snarky and awful and say, well, I'm an epistemologist. That's like, you want to throw up. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know if, if, if somehow, for lack of any other file cabinet designation, you know, you say you're an artist, I'm an artist. It's serious business in my mind. It's serious. I'm 72 now. It's very serious. I get up and I treat it like I'm going to work at work. You know, I'm not going to waste time and I'm going to try to do my best. Your heart's on the line. It is. And if I get the chance to show something or share something, let the viewer make it themselves with their eyes and their heart. My signature on it doesn't mean anything to me. Mm. You know, and if there's some sort of great dialogue that happens... How cool is that? Gee, to just be able to speak to somebody else, to really get a little deeper than the surface. that That's a big deal. You have companionship then. Mm. And if it lasts a little longer than yourself, wow, what a responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Daniel, this is great. Thank you so much for coming in today. Yeah, really I enjoyed talk it. too much. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the chapters. Yeah, it's another chapter. That's what it is. I'm working on Here, I'll tell you, I'm working on another thing now. It's like, I've been thinking about this for over 25 years. And I have a collection of 16 photographs of women done in Japan in the 1850s. Very small photographs. Mm-hmm. I've been looking at them for all these years. And, of course, I've been doing these drawings. And I wanted to have an exhibit with not too much explanation called Intermediate Expression. The 16 photos and 16 drawings. And that's it. Yeah. And if somebody sees it and explains it a little bit, I'd be very open to that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Daniel. This is great. There really you have it. Enjoyed having you here today. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive Podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. 